Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me today are Stanley Nelson, who's an independent filmmaker. He's with us online from Radio Art Studio in Manhattan. And Professor Bobby Donaldson from the University of South Carolina. He's in the history department, but he also heads the Center for Civil Rights History and Research. We're going to be discussing Stanley Nelson's new film, Tell Them We Are Rising. It's about the development of African-American colleges in the United States, but primarily in the American South. So with that introduction, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you so much. The film will be airing on South Carolina ETV on February the 19th. It's part of Independent Lens. It's a national broadcast of PBS. So first of all, Stanley, what was the genesis for your decision to make this film? Well, there are a couple of things. I think probably the most personal thing was that my parents uh, both went to uh, black colleges. My mother went to Talladega in Alabama, and my father went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. My father and his brother were the first people in their family to graduate high school. And um, after high school, he was kind of bumming around working uh, dead-end jobs, and um, he had a chance to go to Howard University, and that changed his life. He became a, a dentist, and um, you know that also changed my life and my siblings' life, lives and will change uh, my kids' lives on down through the generations. So the fact that there was a black college that my father could go to in the 1930s um, was very instrumental in my development. And the black college movement, were there any African-American colleges in the United States prior to the Civil War? Bobby? There were. I mean, some, some of the, one of the earliest institutions is dated at Cheney, what is now Cheney University, back to 1830s. Okay. And where is that located? In, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. So uh, if I can chime in, this is Stanley. Uh, you know, before the Civil War, um, there were three universities, Wilberforce, Cheney, and Lincoln, but they were all in the North. You know, and obviously the vast majority of the African-American population was in the South. And so before the Civil War, of course, there were no uh, black colleges in the South. Well, let's talk about the development of the black college movement, because as it in the post-Civil War period, it was primarily in in the South, both denominational colleges and eventually publicly funded colleges. Bobby? Yeah, indeed. The, the film itself helps to document in, in, in significant ways the dramatic transformation of the American South and the influence that historically black colleges played a role. I mean, one of the, one of the important contributions of the Reconstruction period are these African-American institutions across the, across the region uh, that become anchors uh, in communities uh, from Virginia to Texas. All right. The the initial impulse were backed by denominations primarily, correct? I, I think that's right. I think that's that's borne out in the film itself. Uh, most denominations had missionary institutions uh, throughout the region. Uh, the American Missionary Association was one notable uh, organization that developed institutions across the region. Uh, and um, the AME Church itself uh, had several institutions as well. Yeah, I, th- I think we also, though, ha- have to also, you know, make sure we give credit to the African-American population of the South, which really, you know, pushed for these schools, uh, helped build these schools physically, you know, chipped in money to, to start these schools. So although many of the schools uh, had contributions, large contributions uh, from denominations, um, we can't forget that that the uh, real push for these schools, uh, in many instances, came from Southern African Americans. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and, and, and indeed, the survival of many of these schools was was very much connected to uh, African American leaders and citizens who helped support uh, these institutions financially and otherwise. Well, in the debates in the Constitutional Convention, South Carolina, in eighteen sixty-eight, education was one of the the major pushes. Of course, that, at that time, it was looking almost entirely at K through 12 or 1 through 12. But the desire for education, it comes through in the debate. It was in the newspapers, and it was answered by in South Carolina by denominational colleges. Right. Uh, Allen and Benedict, one, Allen AME, Benedict Baptist, Northern Baptist. Now, we need to understand that these colleges are being founded by Northern philanthropists are supported by North, and the Northern branches of denominations. Right. And indeed, I mean, this time period, what's ironic is that as these colleges are dev- evolving, as documented in the film, 
in a place like South Carolina, the 1868 Constitution has dramatic impact. Most notably, another historically black college that most don't think about was the University of South Carolina, which in that short window of time was predominantly African-American institution because many of these founders of the new constitution were products themselves of African-American colleges and universities and saw the important need to expand literacy uh, as a key component of citizenship. The University of South Carolina, interestingly, was the only flagship state white college in the South to have black students, black faculty, and black trustees. And when the university shuts down uh, because of the, the end of Reconstruction in 1877, those very students and some of the faculty go back to Howard University, Atlanta University, and other institutions that are documented in the, in the film. And the film, by the way, from the beginning, let's just kind of lay, lay it out from these early days through the present. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the important things for us in making the film was to start uh, the film in the time of enslavement, to, to have that as a framework for the film, when you know, it, not only um, was it illegal for African Americans in, in the majority of the South to learn to read and write, to be educated, it was also illegal for their owners, so to speak, in the South to teach them how to read and write. So coming out of the Civil War, education for African Americans was looked at as kind of, you know, the promised land, the holy grail was was education. And so you see right after the Civil War, um, colleges exploding all across the South. So, you know, if you go across the South right now, a lot of schools are, are, are celebrating their 150th year because they started right after the war. So, you know, we, we start there. Um, we go on to the story of Booker T. Washington and and what he kind of espoused in his debates with uh, W.B. Du Bois about which way uh, education should go for African Americans. Booker T. Washington really pushed this idea of what they called industrial education, which in some ways um, was education for subservience, you know, um, that uh, African Americans would not fight for civil rights, would not fight for political rights, but would, you know, become the best bricklayers, uh, leather workers, you know, painters, carpenters that they possibly could and, and raise the themselves up by their bootstraps. And uh, Du Bois and others said, no, wait a minute, you know, we are just as intelligent as white folks and we should be educated, you know, in, in the same way. And so we talk about that debate. We go into the 20s and, and the 30s as as black colleges come into their own and the, the fight for black colleges to be controlled by black administrators, uh, which was really pushed by the students. We go into, uh, after that, Brown versus Board of Ed and uh, how that came out of this, uh, what we call the audacious plan at Howard University to not only educate uh, black lawyers to raise the Howard University Law School up to uh, incredibly high standards and then to sue, basically sue the government for to end uh, Jim Crow to end segregation. And then we go to the sit-in movements in the, in the 60s, which were really propelled by black college students across the South, started at North Carolina A&T and spread all over the South. And we push on to uh, the story of, of uh, Southern University in Baton Rouge, uh, where two students were killed uh, during protests. Um, that's one of the uh, most amazing and, um, and emotional stories in the film because there's actual footage. I, 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 I interrupt you there because I could not believe the graphic footage of the shooting of those two young men to be concluded with hosing down the sidewalks, washing away the blood of those two young men who were killed there on the on the campus. Um, so sorry for that interruption, but that was one of the many striking images in the film. Yeah, no, it's a it's a gut wrenching scene. Um, you, you know that that. Uh, after these two students are killed, uh, that kind of, that section of the film ends with uh, two students actually washing the blood and sweeping the blood away. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I just wonder, like, you know, who asked, who, who, whose idea was it that that should be a job for students to clean up the blood? But, but it is there, and, and you know, it, it, somebody shot that amazing footage of that, and so that is kind of the the coda to that 
incident, which is really an, an, an emotional, incredibly emotional incident where we not only have the footage of the students being shot, but, you know, one of the guy's sister is in the film who was there when he was shot. Um, other of the student leaders in the protest, um, the governor who actually ordered the uh, uh, law enforcement onto the campus and, and still today um, is, is, you know, is not repentant. Uh, about that was, what that happened. Was, that was Governor Edwards, right? right? Yeah, yeah. He, you know, still blames the students for 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 these killings. And then we go to the last chapter of the film we call Today, which is about you know kind of where where colleges uh, stand today. And we profile three students, uh, two uh, young women who are just going into black colleges and why they chose to go to a black college, and one student from uh, FAMU in, in in Florida who talks about um, you know. He's a he's about to graduate and talks about um, what it's meant to him to to actually come to a to a black college. And in between you, again, this is graphic footage, not in terms of violence, but of the decline and the decay, collapse of Morris Brown College in Atlanta. Yeah, and there, there's incredible footage of of, of Morris Brown, which um, had 2,500 students. And now has 50 students because they lost their accreditation, and and you know the 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 main buildings are, are locked. You know you see the chains around the door, the dorms are are battered, and, and the windows are all broken out. And you know a side note is that you know I went to Morris Brown for a term in my college career, so I actually lived in those dorms that uh, you know are now destroyed. Well, you juxtapose film before Morris Brown got into trouble, including. Football stands filled, and then to empty stadium with graffiti, broken railings, broken seats, the dorms. It, it's part of the story, and of course we'll we'll get into that because you've given us a really good outline, I think, Bobby, to start. And let's let's go back to the the founding of these colleges in the 1860s and 1870s, and they varied in what they were offering. And of course, that eventually gets into the debate between Booker T. Washington and, and Du Bois. But when, for example, Allen and Benedict were founded, they were offering what I would consider pretty much a traditional liberal arts curriculum from the from the get-go. I think so. And I think in some ways it was, it was blended. Later, there is a real debate in these colleges and universities about what type of curriculum, what should be the outcome of instruction. What type of leadership are we cultivating? When, when Stanley was mentioning earlier about the the tensions about Tuskegee and the Booker T. Washington platform. Recently, I saw this film uh, in the company of some very proud graduates of Tuskegee who took exception to the way the school was kind of described or presented, uh, who saw real value in Booker T. Washington's model at the time in which it was offered. Most of the schools, for, for example, Claflin University was formed in 1869, Allen in 1870. And when you look at the curriculum, they are classically oriented schools, liberal arts schools. As time moves forward and all schools are looking for additional funding, they begin to blend that curriculum to include the industrial arts as well. Uh, But those very same debates, which were national, are very much at play on the local level as well uh, as schools try to decide what their future will be in terms of the curriculum, but also the type of leadership uh, that you're you're seeking to produce in in a rigidly segregated uh, region. Well, yeah. Can I add something there? Sure. I mean, I, I think that one of the, you know, one of the things about Booker T. Washington is not, you know, what 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 he was saying and and what he was advocating. It's that the fact the fact was that he then becomes the most powerful voice in black education. Yes. And I think that's what is was really dangerous about Booker yeah. T. So it's fine, you know, if if that's what Tuskegee wants to do. But when it's picked up by, uh, you know, Southern planters and no- Northern industrialists for their own purpose mm-hmm. and, and saying, OK, this is the way that, that, that African-Americans should be educated. Let's pour our money in, into Tuskegee as a model and, and into other schools so that African-Americans are really educated for subservience. And this becomes the model for black education. I think that then becomes a problem. And that's what we wanted to show. And that that was the debate that that Du Bois and other people had with Booker T. Washington, that, you know, he had this outsized power. Very much so. And and there were schools even in South Carolina that had to go to the Booker T. Washington was the gatekeeper to funding all over the country and who Mm -hmm. had to modify, shape their their approach if they want that type of funding that he would send their way 
by way of Carnegie or Peabody or other or, or other powerful white capitalists. Well, at, I think that let me can I just add to I mean I think one of the things that first intrigued us about about Booker T was that he was a college president and he also is arguably the most powerful African American in the country. And so that in and of itself speaks to how important uh, African-American education was at that point. Yes. And so that's one of the reasons why we love that story. Um, you know, most people today couldn't name a black, uh, a black college president if, if they tried. But, you know, this was the man who was probably at that point, you know, once Frederick Douglass passes, is the most famous African-American in the country. And, and he may well have been one of the better known college presidents period. Part of this national notice came after a speech he gave in Atlanta, Bobby, yeah, they, about, about the role of black education as he saw it. Well, it's called the, it was called the Atlanta Compromise Address. And, and part of the, the debate in September of 1895 was, you know, what should be the political future of African Americans? Here is a moment where Booker T. Washington endorses segregation. He endorses an industrial approach uh, and many thought there there wasn't sort of a, a, a removal of a civil rights political struggle. Ironically, when Du Bois, when Booker T. Washington makes that address, uh, he's he's sent a short letter of uh, of support from a young professor named W. E. B. Du Bois in 1895. Within a short duration, Du Bois completely reevaluates his assessment of Booker Washington, and in 1903, the famous book The Souls of Black Folk is released, and that is a stunning indictment of what he regarded as the failure of the leadership of, of, of Booker T. Washington. And that, that indictment is echoed even in, in, in places like South Carolina, where there are prominent educators and intellectuals who take great issue. I mean, one notable person uh, was a man named Kelly Miller, who came out of Fairfield County, South Carolina, became a very powerful professor at Howard University, but who, on a regular basis, took great issue with some of the statements and policies of Booker T. Washington. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and today I'm speaking with Stanley Nelson and Bobby Donaldson about Nelson's film, Tell Them We Are Rising. Here in South Carolina, you talk about, you mentioned Claflin, which started out with a very traditional liberal arts uh, curriculum, and then it became actually the first black agricultural and mechanical college because this was before South Carolina State existed, and South Carolina created an agricultural and mechanical division and gave money to Claflin uh, in Orangeburg to offer the courses in many ways to prevent the possibility of black students wanting to attend USC, which at that time was the Morrill Land Grant College. This is pre-Clemson. Right. So, yeah, so Claflin had a dual sort of dual curriculum mm -hmm. at one time. Uh, uh, another school that's mentioned in, in Stanley's film that is from is Voorhees mm -hmm. uh, College, and ironically, Voorhees' origins is directly connected to Booker T. Washington. Uh, the founder of Voorhees, Evelyn Wright, was sent to this rural area of South Carolina to to cre create a small Tuskegee Institute, and, and that school still still thrives in, in Denmark. Now, Stanley talked about the leadership of of colleges. White folks are in charge in many of these places. Most places, and one of the key pieces, and Stanley can echo this, that is, that's quite compelling and powerful in the film, is that moment, certainly in the 1920s, when African-American students and others are demanding a transformation in leadership and, and seeking African-American-led institutions and, and, and seeking out qualified African-American leaders to now lead these historic institutions. Fisk in Nashville is very prominent in this. Stanley, you might want to talk about that story. Yeah, uh, th that's um, one of the great stories in the film. I should say that that one of the things that we wanted to do in this film was tell stories. So you know, the the film is in 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 chapters, kind of individual stories that hopefully illustrate certain points. So in the 1920s, we talk about Fisk University, where the the president of Fisk, who was a white man. Um, just institutes these draconian measures. You know, uh, male and female students are not allowed to walk together. He starts canceling the sports teams. He 
cancels the fraternities, all of those kind of things. And, and the students finally just rise up and protest and go on strike. And, and, and basically, no, none of the students would go to class. And so uh, the trustees then, you know, vote uh, the president out and they have a new president. Um, and even though the, the, the new president, it, it's a funny thing, the new president was not African-American, the new president was white, but he was much more responsive to the, to the students. But that starts a kind of a wave across the country of students saying, well, wait a minute, we, you know, we should have our own people run these institutions. And so this, slowly this, the, the colleges all across the country start to change because until the 1920s, 30s, 40s, these, the, the presidents uh, and the administrations of these students, the board of directors of these, I'm sorry, of these schools were um, largely white all, all over the country. Yeah, another uh, historically African American college in South Carolina that, that has roots in this period is Morris College in Sumter. Mm-hmm. And Morris College was established almost a century ago in 1908, and it's and it came out of a split at Benedict, where some of the very prominent African American Baptist leaders were uh, took issue with the fact that Benedict College was being led by a white president and a white board of trustees, and so there was a split of people who literally lifted up. Uh, students and took them to to Sumter to create what is now Morris College, which was an African-American-led institution. Uh, And, and, you know, one of the longstanding presidents of of Morris was Luns Richardson, who just passed away in the last two weeks, who was president of that institution for 43 years. When do we begin to see public support in the South for African-American colleges and universities? Is that with the beginning of segregation? In South Carolina, it's certainly part of the segregation question. Jim Crow with Ben Tillman, People forget that they, they remember Ben Tillman founded Winthrop and Clemson, but they forget that he founded what became South Carolina State University. So South Carolina State is uh, established in 1896, uh, one year after the Atlanta Compromise, right as the Pleasant Ferguson decision is rendered. Uh, and I think in many of the southern states, you begin to see public funding for institutions emerging at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, there was something called the Morrell Act, which which really um, uh, began the whole idea of public colleges all across all across the country, all across the South. Uh, and these were white colleges, but of course, African Americans couldn't attend. So at that same point, there's a kind of a land grant set aside also for for black colleges across the South, and that happens in the late nineteenth uh, century. And actually, South Carolina State began as and I, Correct me on the name. South Carolina Normal Agricultural and Mechanical Institute was at the right, which tells you the direction that it was going. Mm-hmm. The yeah. industrial arts, but the normal is important because training teachers, teachers. Right. was very much a part of the early black college movement in the eighteen sixties and eighteen well, seventies. And that's repeated a repeated theme in, in Stanley's film is that I mean here is the incubator of black leadership, black preachers, black teachers, black business leaders. Uh, all of who are being shaped and formed through these historically black colleges. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, you, you have to look at the setup of, of all of this. You, you know, you have um, people coming out of this time of enslavement, you know, literally millions of people coming out of enslavement who have been prevented from being educated. You know, one of the things we talk about in the film is that it was illegal for, uh, you know, a white slave owner to teach his slaves to read and write. As somebody says, you know, it, it, it went, you know, hey, this is my slave. You know, I own this person. I can beat them. I can rape them. I can uh, kill them if I want. But the one law that was on the books said that you cannot educate them because education was feared. That's how much education was feared. So you have the vast, vast, vast majority of African-Americans coming out of enslavement with no knowledge of reading and writing, no knowledge of education at all. And so how do you educate uh, this this population? Well, the first thing you have to do is, is get some, some teachers to educate. So the first, you know, schools were educating um, African-Americans to be teachers. That was part of what, what the first wave was about. Initially, those school teachers came down with missionary groups, well, beginning with the Port Royal Experiment during the war, Bobby. Primarily white men, and, but mostly women, came down to, to be the teachers. And, and a few African-American women also yeah. were part of that cohort as well. You mentioned earlier about USC being a black college during Reconstruction, and a big component of that was the normal school, which was for training teachers. 
Right. And, and they went on to become transformative leaders. Uh, and those who ultimately, when the University of South Carolina sh- shuts down in 1877, some of those graduates go on. One of the notable graduates was a guy named Joseph Morris. Morris becomes the president of Allen University and helps to develop a new law school at Allen in the 1880s. And that's a part of the history that, of the school that is not widely known. But one of the things I know that is uh, amplified in, in, St- in Stanley's film, and he's mentioned it, is when places like Howard University develops a, a formidable law school and those graduates go on and become some of the real architects of what is now uh, the civil rights movement, one of the very proud Howard University law graduates uh, was a man named Harold Bulware. Mm-hmm. And Bulware uh, was a product of a small college called Harbison Institute. And then he graduates from Johnson C. Smith in uh, Charlotte. And then he graduates from Howard Law School. And he comes back to South Carolina and lives in Columbia. And he becomes a real legal mind behind what is Briggs v. Elliott, a key component of the Brown v. Board decision that is discussed mm-hmm. in, the, in the film. Uh, and he, uh, he follows the example of Charles Hamilton Houston, one of his instructors, one of his professors uh, at Howard Law School. You mentioned Harbison College, and most people probably don't know that Harbison College existed. It closed in 1958, I think. Right. Uh, so there were several African-American junior colleges, Harbison Junior College, Bettis Academy Junior College, Friendship Junior College in Rock Hill that was instrumental in the, in the student demonstrations in that community. Stanley, after watching the film, I, I went in and did some background on lost colleges, uh, the closing of colleges, and I knew about Friendship in South Carolina closing. So Morris Brown is is is, is actually almost closed, which is was part of it is still part of Atlanta University. Yeah. And that's an interesting arc. In, in a century ago, Morris Brown was a phenomenal institution in Atlanta that produced African American clergy and the AME Church and educators, uh, and it was thriving. And then you go to the campus now, and I was there this past weekend. Uh, and it's a ghost town. I mean, what's, what you see in the film is what is there. And it shows the, the real decline of this institution. And it's a, an example of a number of institutions which are have closed in the last few decades or on the verge of closing, um, partly out of funding, part of, out of under-enrollment. And, and that piece is discussed uh, in Stanley's film in a quite powerful way. Yeah, can I, I? I just add, you know, I, wh- wh- how we came upon that that scene there was that um, I was in Atlanta a few years ago, and I, you know, just wanted to go back and see what Morris Brown was like because I, I had gone there for a term, and when we went to the college to see it, you know, it looks like a a bomb hit it. You know, some of the buildings, you know, the grass is overgrown. Um, the the main building that was built in in the 1880s, the clock tower, you know, this this beautiful beautiful building, you know, has a chain around the doors and a huge lock. And, you know, I just felt that 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 visually said so much of what we wanted to say about what can happen to a a black college if it's not supported. As I said, I went to to checking state by Southern State. I'm just going to we've already mentioned friendship here in South Carolina. And we've talked about Morris Brown and Alabama. Daniel Payne College closed in 1979, not quite 100 years Leland College in New Orleans and later Baker, Louisiana, Mississippi Industrial College in Holly Springs. It was founded in 1905, clearly on the Tuskegee model, uh, closed in 1982. Kittrell College in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about Harbison here in Morristown, Normal and Industrial College in Morristown, Tennessee. And then we early mentioned St. Paul's in Virginia which was a normal and industrial school. So it's not just African-American colleges, smaller colleges, but in particular with this film, I thought, looking at the Morris Brown story, and I knew about Harbison and friendship, I just wanted to see what was the impact across the, the rest of the South for historically black colleges. And the 70s and 80s seems to be pretty much a time when these schools begin to, these smaller schools begin to fall by the wayside. Yeah, it's interesting. Another thing that comes out, and it came out recently when I was part of a, a showing of this film in a, in a lo- local library, and someone asked the question, "Well, isn't this all the consequence of the civil rights movement?" And it, it took me back to a conversation with a man named Robert Carter, who was a graduate of the Howard University Law School, later became a federal judge, but was one of the key architects of Brown v. Board. And in his later years, he said he never imagined that what was Brown v. Board might ultimately bring an end to black institutions, black neighborhoods. Uh, and in some ways, what you see 
at Morris Brown is that some very talented, capable students who would have gone to those schools generations ago now have doors open across the country. And in some ways, we're seeing that people are making decisions about what what is the most appropriate, what's the best environment to be educated. And as the film ends, as Stanley mentioned, there's an African-American woman uh, who I think goes to Florida A&M. Is that right, Stanley? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how this, at, at this point, this is the kind of type of school that she needs to be nurtured and, 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 and educated. Uh, and so, so many students now are actually making that decision. Uh, where their parents and grandparents, there was actually not much for the discussion. You're going to Howard University, or in my case, you're going to Morehouse. Uh, And then ultimately, I make a different decision. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that we have to understand is that, you know, until the late 60s, Black colleges were, were, were the only game in town for most African-Americans, you know. So I, I don't know the exact figure, but my guess would be, you know, we're talking about upward of 95 percent of black college students are going to uh, African-American institutions b- before that time. So, you know, for my parents, there, there, there was no other choice. As, as we get into the, the late 60s, as Brown versus Board of Ed actually starts to, to really take effect, that, that changed. And for so many students today, that's, that has changed. But what's happened in the last couple of years is a lot of black colleges have seen an uptick in applications. And, you know, that's for a a number of reasons that that we can talk about. But they have seen an uptick um, because I think that for so so many black uh, young black people, they're looking for that safe intellectual space, a, a, a place where, where they can, you know, for four years um, not be judged uh, by the color of their skin every time they enter a room. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and today I'm speaking with Stanley Nelson and Bobby Donaldson about Nelson's film, Tell Them We Are Rising. Bobby, you've been at the University of South Carolina now for quite a while, almost 20 years. Right. And at USC, and I believe this is correct, and other predominantly white institutions, over that time, the percentage of African-American enrollment has actually declined instead yes. of, instead of increased. At one point, Carolina had almost 16 or 17 percent of its student body, undergraduate student body, was African-American. So when I joined the faculty, it was about nearly nearly 20 percent. I think it's now 9 percent. But one of the things that Stanley mentioned that I think should be underscored is, in some ways, the revival of some of these institutions and, and, and people recognizing that their the historical role these institutions played a generation ago, they continue to play. Uh, and in terms of affordability, accessibility. I mean, I think many of the historical black colleges play that role, affording an education that would have been denied otherwise for so many students. Well, I I think the president of Spelman said it very powerfully in the film about the importance of African-American institutions of higher education. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, they're they're, uh, just uh, amazing figures, you know, still today um, uh, of the, you know, the amount of doctors, judges, lawyers, uh, people uh, in in, uh, engineering that that, that are produced from uh, black colleges. It's still way above, you know, uh, their proportion in this country. I think black colleges represent like 3% or something of, 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 of students, you know, in, in this country and still produce a huge amount of, of, of professional, African-American professionals. So back to something you said, you said earlier when you were questioned, the civil rights movement has resulted in the decline in black colleges. Um, well, I think that there's a story to be told about desegregation and integration and, and the impact that has had on African-American institutions beyond colleges. Or if you go to what were once thriving African-American downtowns or professional districts, and they're, they're, they are a shadow of what they were two decades, I mean, two generations ago. The Whaley neighborhood and the businesses around Allen and Benedict, which right. in 1965 were thriving right. and now... So Allen University and Benedict College here in Columbia were in the midst of a thriving African-American community and neighborhood. Uh, as integration and suburbanization uh, happens, I mean, s- some of your talented people move elsewhere or move out of the state. Uh, and it's interesting now, Allen and Benedict are in part of a revival of the very same communities that were in place a, a generation ago. Stanley, do you do you see this in the other area, other places where you've been filming? Yeah, no, I think you see that all across the country. You know, north and south. I, I mean, you know, I, look, I, I think that that we have to be careful. You know, we don't we don't want to go back to, to pre-integration, but but um, there were certain things that that were lost, um, and and 
I think the the mission is how do you how do you bring some of those things back? You know, how do you revitalize uh, these communities? How do you, how do we make sure that we support uh, black colleges, universities, and and, and other institutions um, that we have in the African American community? And also, how do you produce students who recognize their education that they're being afforded? There's a responsibility uh, to return to give back to be a, f- a force of change. Uh, in the in the areas where they came from, Think, thinking of that takes me back to the Fisk story and student protest on campus. We've we've touched on the civil rights movement, but Fisk started out simply with for administrative change, and that took a, a while at many colleges for African American administrators to replace white leaders. I think so, and I think the uh, and I. I'm trying to remember now the sequence of the film. So there was a piece about Voorhees mm-hmm. in, in 1969 where Voorhees students are emboldened by the black power, black nationalist period. But they're asking for change on the campus. They're asking for administrative change. They're asking for a change in the curriculum. They want a curriculum that looks like the student body. And that's, that's happening everywhere. Uh, so that was some of the tension at Southern as well. One of the lead voices at Southern, ironically, uh, that Stanley did interviews with a, was a guy named Ricky Hill. And the moment I saw him, like, this guy for years was a very, very prominent professor here at, at South Carolina State who was a part of the, of the incident at Southern. Well, and the incident at Southern, incident at South Carolina State when students are protesting about curriculum, by the time you get there, you're dealing with black administrators, and they're, they're no longer white administrators, but students are protesting for change. Yeah. Well, in the case yeah, of Voorhees, yeah. you're also dealing with a largely white-led board of trustees that students also took issue with. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what what happens in the film is that is that we go from you know the kind of civil rights movement, the sit-in movement of of the uh, you know early to mid '60s um, uh, that that spreads across black colleges in the South. You know, starting in North Carolina, A and T spreads all over South Carolina, everywhere, um, where students are really looking outward. You know, how do how do we we, we want integration in in um, the stores that in our towns that that surround the colleges. But then in the in the late 60s, early 70s, the students start to look inward. How do we change our institutions to be more responsive to, to, to us? We're talking about, you know, the time of, of, of the Vietnam War, the Black Panthers. All these things are happening in this country. And the student, students at black colleges start to say, we want schools that really um, – Talk to us and speak to us, and 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 that's what happens, um, you know, in, in at Voorhees, and that's what happens at uh, uh, Southern in Baton Rouge. And actually, what happens in Orangeburg is not all about the bowling alley; it's also about what's going on on campus. Man, it's a long hit. Me, what happens? What happened fifty years ago yeah. on February eighth that led to the tragic killing of three students in in Orangeburg had a long history, and some of that some of that tension had emerged not only about the continued segregation in Orangeburg, but also the leadership of the institution. And, and I think the year before the massacre, the black president, Bennett Turner, is dismissed because of students who are, who are not excited or not supporting the type of leadership that he's providing and, and push for his ouster. What was he providing or not providing? Well, many thought he was, he was beholden more to the white legislature and the white members of the board of trustees then to the expectations and de- demands of the black faculty and student body and who believed that he was not on the side of civil rights uh, and, and social protest. And Stanley, was that the same, one of the same issues at Southern? Yeah, in, in some ways, you know, the, there were a lot of issues at Southern. You know, one, um, you know, they're, they're part of uh, uh, the state uh, education system. Louisiana State is, is just, I think they're getting twice as much per student. Uh, you know, the books are bad. Uh, the classrooms are, are dilapidated. And there was a feeling that the president there was just not responsive to the students. And, and basically, the students gave the president a vote of no confidence and went out on strike. And... Um, and, you know, and that's kind of what led to to what happens uh, a few months later where students are actually killed. Any stories that you discovered along the way that you never heard of before? Well, I, I had never heard of the story of, of Southern. You know, we had never heard of the, the, the killings at Southern. Most people have not. When we actually took the film down to uh, Baton Rouge, we had alumni come up and say, you know, I went here and I never even heard of this story. So, we, were, you know, for us, it was just amazing to find this story and, and to actually 
uh, realized that there was footage of the students being killed, that that the uh, governor was still around and still alive, that students who were leaders of the protest, like Ricky Hill, were still alive and, and, and still, you know, were willing to talk about the protest there. So that was one of the, the big kind of, you know, uh, wow uh, moments for us. Um, and I think it makes for a very um, emotional story, you know, within the film. Where was the film? Where did you find the film? Oh, uh, we found it from a local station uh, down in Baton Rouge. You know that um, you know just just digging and, and looking, and uh, you know a lot of times when you're looking for footage, you have to go at at different angles. So sometimes you know you, you know you can say oh um, you know protests you know at, at at Southern, and you can find it. But sometimes you know you you just have to do things like look for that day. You know, so you just you know you give them that day and say you know, um, you know we're looking for footage from from this day. We want to see the, the, all the news footage that you have from that day, and and it's not labeled right. You know, you don't know what nobody knows what it is, but you know, you you can find footage that way. So a lot of times, you know, looking for footage, it's a matter of just going at it from different angles. You go for the names, you go for the names of the students who were killed. You go for the governor, anything about the governor, and uh, you know, within like a six week time period. A lot of stuff times is a lot of times stuff is mislabeled, and you just you know just got, get lucky. So it came from a local station. In, in Baton well, Rouge. I was going to say what most lo- local stations do now, they would have either retaped it or tossed that. But one of the great one of the great things about that era, the film era, is that you can't retape it. You know, film is film. So once it's shot, you can't do anything with it. So if they don't throw it out, which a lot of times they do, it still exists. So one of the dirty little secrets about doing archival films is that the one of the things that's hardest to find are the studio recordings. You know, so the anchors saying today this is what happened because that's on tape and they tape over that. But the stuff where they go out, they send a crew out to shoot back in those days, it was film and it still exists. Yeah, one of the things I applaud with Stanley, not only in this film but all the film, I mean, all of these are great films because of the sort of the consistent effort of, of digging in ways that and, and reaching audiences that histo- as historians we're unable to really tap into. And so I'm watching this film, this film with a South Carolina lens on, and there's this piece about Voorhees with Sam Donaldson that I've never heard of before. And, and so like, where, did these, where did this team find this material? Or there is, as in, in the piece, there's a, there's a, there's a, a quick succession of, 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 of images of demonstrations and sit-ins. And the very first demonstration that's shown, uh, it goes very quickly, but it's on March 2nd, 1961. And I suppose Stanley found that in our moving image research collection at the university. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a largely unknown demonstration that leads to a major Supreme Court case called uh, Edwards v. South Carolina. And when you look at the canister, all the canister says was Negro demonstration. All right. Now, what is Edwards v. South Carolina? So Edwards v. South Carolina was a ruling in 1963 by the United States Supreme Court that overturned the conviction of 187 students who were arrested for protesting on the grounds of the State House. And among those who were arrested was Reverend Ida Quincy Newman of the NACP, Dr. Benjamin J. Glover, who was a pastor of Mother Emanuel in Charleston, and a young student at South Carolina State named James Clyburn. In terms of the civil rights movement, yes, it began with North Carolina A&T, but Friendship College and Rock Hill was the next. Yeah, I think the other important contribution of this film is that it was he talks to the, those, those gentlemen who were in Greensboro, and then you realize that this is a domino that's happening in nearly every place where there's a black college, you find a protest movement. And there's one guy who's featured in the film says, if you were not involved in a protest, then something was really wrong with you and your institution. And there's great, great footage of that because, you know, all across the country, these uh, demonstrations were exploding. And so, you know, all the local stations shot these different demonstrations. And we actually do this thing where we split the screen and the screen keep splitting and splitting and splitting until we have like 30 different little different little screens of protests uh, and sit-in movements all over the country, all of them led by black colleges. The fact that there were black colleges across the South when the black college movement started after the Civil War, there was a certain feeling of unease in the white community about establishing them. Then they, it became a mark of progress. You had a college in your town, but there was always, at least initially, concern by the white community about what might be happening there, other than education. Right, because you can control it. I mean, I think, I mean, the other piece about this film that's, that's so important is that you see graduates of these schools 
sort of recollecting and remembering the importance of these institutions. And for someone like me who's born after the movement, you, you sort of you sort of read it on paper, but to hear people talk about the integral role these institutions played in their communities and shaping their lives, I think that's an invaluable co- contribution of this film. Um, I remember my father graduated from Payne College in Augusta, and I remember going to that campus on a regular basis. It was a, a part of the community, so I was not involved in any classes, but I went to every game, every homecoming. I went to every homecoming at South Carolina State, and it was a kind of uh, a rite of passage uh, for generations of people to be a part of those inst- institutions. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one of the subtexts of the film is the importance of these institutions and the important importance of education. You know, since before the time before the time of enslavement ended, you know, up until today, that's kind of the, the the subtext and how much these colleges meant not only in educating but educate you know educating leaders, um, the football teams meant to the community, uh, fraternities, sororities, all these things that that these schools uh, were part of. I think that's really um, one of the kind of subtexts of, of this whole film. So the, the film ends on a, on a very high note with the fact that the African-American community in many respects is rediscovering the importance of these schools to their community. Yeah, and I think, too, I mean, and Stanley, is, I mean, his, his team, they've done this, and he can elaborate. But the very fact that you're now affording people an opportunity to, to, to recapture these memories and the film itself, I think, spurs recollections in ways that probably we've not seen in a long time. And now Stanley and his team are working to help to document and catalog uh, those memories for the future. Yeah, one of the things that that we've done is we have what we call the digital yearbook, and we've been been doing this for the past year, and and we are asking people to to send us their uh, pictures, diaries, letters, whatever they had, to upload them digitally um, to us, um, and we will then put them in what we're calling this digital yearbook, which will live forever uh, at the uh, Schomburg Library in, in in New York. And when I say that we want people to to send us this. I mean, uploaded. You know, we, we're not asking anybody to send us anything physically. But, um, you know, if you go to our website, which is hbcurising.com, hbcurising, um, you know, you, you can f- uh, get the instructions on how to do that. Um, and we've been very successful in, in uh, you know, getting that underway. Bobby, back here in, in South Carolina, let's talk a minute about your center. Sure. So the Center for Civil Rights History was was created in 2015 with the uh, with the acquisition of the congressional papers of Congressman Clyburn. Uh, and last spring, uh, we do a number of public programs. So we helped to bring Stanley Nelson uh, to Columbia for a series of showings of his films uh, and also for a, a visit to Allen University. Uh, and part of what we seek to do is to help to document the largely untold stories of civil rights uh, in South Carolina and elsewhere. And, and and this film echoes an important point that we try to underscore was the critical role of these colleges and universities. One of the consultants to Stanley's film was Cecil Williams of Orangeburg. Uh, and, and Mr. Williams has an extraordinary collection of photographs, and we've been helping him to identify persons in those images, locations, and to tell those stories. Uh, we also conduct oral interviews of persons who were involved in, in the movement uh, and also seek to expand a collection of materials, a collection that just came in yesterday, was some materials of the Reverend Benjamin Glover, who in 1961 was the pastor of Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, uh, who was also a very strong mentor to African-American college and high school students who were uh, engaged in civil rights protests. When you talk about the civil rights movement, actually, most people just think it started in the 1960s. No, it's, it's, I mean, it, as, as Stanley's film shows, the movement's origins predate the 60s by generations. Um, and and we could well take it back to Reconstruction where the expectations of civil rights uh, are outlined and codified. Uh, and you see generations of young people particularly uh, seeking to make real those promises. Uh, ironically, uh, 60 years ago, uh, in January of 1958, the accreditation of Allen University was threatened um, by Governor George Bell Timmerman. And he is partly threatened because the assumption was Allen was producing activists and was uh, housing communist professors. So in 1958, several students leave the campus of Allen University, come across Columbia to the University of South Carolina to seek admission. And they know they're being denied, but they wanted to make a point that if you're going to shut down our institutions, 
or d- deny us accreditation, we will seek other ways to advance our education, even if that means knocking down the doors of a place like the University of South Carolina. Interestingly, the white leadership of Columbia rallied behind Allen against the governor. Right. I mean, Allen was. I mean, Allen had a long reputation. It was producing outstanding leaders, and they also recognized that if Allen's accreditation is denied, it would become an impetus for a push to integrate to the flagship institution. Well, I, I keep thinking about one of the, you mentioned that the products of Allen, and one of my favorite Columbia personages, uh, Fanny Phelps Adams. Yes. For many years, assistant principal at Booker T. Washington High School, and a fabulous teacher. And a very proud graduate of Allen University. Yes. Stanley and Bobby, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Stanley, I'll let you go first. Any last words you'd like to say before we sign off? Um, you know, this was an incredible experience for me to make this film. Um, you know, it's a film that's really dear to my heart. You know, um, will air uh, February 19th all across the country. It's just been a, a really uh, amazing experience um, to see the reaction of, of people, uh, black and white, to this film, um, which is largely information that, that people don't know. And, uh, you know, we strove not only to make a, a film that, that gave people knowledge that they didn't have, but also to make a film that's entertaining. Um, so I hope people tune in. All right. Bobby? Well, I just want to applaud Stanley Nelson yet again for another amazing film. As a historian, you realize products like this help to capture and reach an audience well beyond what we normally can reach. And my hope is that that the public will become more educated about these invaluable institutions and that we'll do all we can to seek to preserve not only the institutions, but also the history of these institutions. All right. Stanley Nelson and Bobby Donaldson, I want to thank you both for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I've already viewed the film, Tell Them We Are Rising, and then having the conversation with the filmmaker Stanley Nelson and my longtime colleague Bobby Donaldson brought new perspectives to a part of Southern history and South Carolina history, some of it not well known, some of it almost completely unknown. The film itself is gripping. The historical footage and photographs and the stories are really a continuum 150 years of the rise of African-American historically black colleges and universities. It's a story in which South Carolina institutions have played a major role since the 1860s. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.